0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 76. Last week, I covered the first of three festivals mandated by God in Exodus 23, in that case the festival of unleavened bread. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Later, in the same chapter of Exodus, God tells the Israelites they are also to observe the festival of harvest. Of the first fruits of their labor, of what they sowed in the field. Modernly, this is known as Shavuot, and is the subject of this week's podcast. And with that, let's get started. Sometimes you will see the festival called the Feast of Weeks. Exodus 34 calls it the Festival of the First Fruits of Wheat Harvest, and Numbers chapter 28 calls it the Day of the First Fruits. In ancient Greek, it was known as Pentecost, but this isn't the same as the Christian Pentecost. I'll get to the reasons for the similarities of the names in a minute. As for the ancient Jewish holiday, I'll just call it Shavuot, which translates to the word weeks, hence the Feast of Weeks. It is celebrated on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, which means it typically falls between May 15th and June 14th on our calendar. This year, and for those of you not listening essentially live, when the episode is released, it's 2019. And this year, Savu starts on the evening of Saturday, June 8th, and ends on the evening of Monday, June 10th, which is, of course, two days. But some modern Jews limit the celebration to one day. However many days are observed, the feast occurs seven weeks after the Passover. More details on this can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 16, which reads, You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the festival of weeks to the Lord your God, contributing a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing that you have received from the Lord your God. Rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites' resident in your town, as well as the strangers, the orphans, and the widows who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and diligently observe these statutes." End quote. Of course, the holiday is designated as a celebration of the harvest. In this case, a harvest of wheat. Remembering back to the last episode, the festival unleavened bread occurs when barley is ready for the harvest. Roughly seven weeks later, the wheat is ready. Also, it's thought by some that in ancient Israel, the grain harvest would last seven weeks. Hence another reason for the name, and the timing of the festival. Overall, it was seen as a season of gladness in the society. At the end of the festival, at least when the temple was in Jerusalem, two loaves of bread made from the recently harvested wheat were left as an offering at the temple. It seems that this was two loaves in total, not two from each family. So, more symbolic, but certainly still meaningful. Some sources posit that during the Shavuot, Local Hebrews would bring offerings of the first fruits to the temple in Jerusalem. This would include what are sometimes referred to as the seven kinds of fruit grown in ancient Israel wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. This list is very similar to what is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the only difference being that Deuteronomy does not have dates but has honey instead. Obviously, the definition of fruit was a bit loose, as wheat, barley, and honey are not really that type of food, but the overall offering maintained the same meaningfulness, and this was no small affair. As a gesture of their gratefulness, and with a bit of pomp, in that era, Jewish farmers, while the fruits were still in the field, would tie a reed around the first ripening fruits from each of these species. When the harvest rolled around, the fruits with reeds would be cut and placed in baskets woven with gold and silver. These ceremonial baskets were then loaded on oxen, and the oxen were adorned too, in their case with gilded horns and laced with garlands of flowers. The oxen were led in a splendid parade to Jerusalem. As the farmers and the accompanying entourages marched through the cities and towns, they would be met with music and other festivities. Upon arrival at the temple, each farmer would present his fruits to a priest. It's thought that the whole ceremony was similar to the one found in Deuteronomy chapter 26 that reads, When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it, and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramaean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. Pausing for a second. This section refers to Laban's efforts to weaken Jacob and rob him of his children and all that would follow. It's also a reference to Jacob's poor beginnings, with the offering of fruit symbolizing all of the blessings that have followed, unpausing. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voices and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power, and with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God, and bow down before the Lord your God." Modern celebrations also use it to mark the occasion of God giving the Torah to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, even though the date of this is found nowhere in the text. Not that the actual date matters terribly much, but according to tradition, the Torah was given to the Israelites seven weeks after the Passover which ties the celebrations together. The Babylonian Talmud, written between the 3rd and 5th centuries AD, refers to the Shavuot as Atzeret, which means to refrain. Thought to be a reference to the prohibition against working on the holiday, they also viewed it as a conclusion of the season of Passover. And since the festival occurred 50 days after the Passover, Greek Jews of the same era gave it the name Pentecost, which is literal Greek for 50th day. And if you think about it, this has been hiding in plain sight. Penta, like pentagon, the five-sided shape, pentagram, a five-pointed star, pentathlon, the Olympic event consisting of five events, and many more. So, Pentecost, 50 days. Modern adherents consider the holiday minor when compared to other, really more well-known Jewish celebrations. Thinking back to the last episode, the observance of the Passover week is really stringent, but the Festival of First Fruits has no mandated Torah rules, except for traditional meals and merriment, and, not to forget, special prayer services and abstaining from work. Having said all of that, customs and traditions have attached to the festival over the millennia since its inception. Some of these include the consumption of milk and cheese, which I'll get to in a minute, the reading of the Book of Ruth, also the decorating of their homes and synagogues with greenery, and engaging in an all night study of the Torah. I'll have more on all three of these the Book of Ruth, the greenery, and the all-night study, in a minute. There's something else. During the holiday, tradition holds that an 11th century AD rabbinical poem is recited. The poem is essentially a praise piece directed at God, the Torah, and ancient Israel. It's publicly read in the synagogue immediately before the morning recital of the Torah, on the first day of the Shavuot. The poem, titled "Ekdilmit." was composed by Rabbi Meir of Worms, whose son was killed during the First Crusade in 1096. Rabbi Meir debated with local, and in this case, it would be German Christian priests. In the debate, he maintained his view on the certainty of God's power, his love for Jewish people, and the excellence of the Torah. It was after this debate that he penned the poem, It consists of 90 Aramaic lines, and centered on the three themes he debated. Not all modern Jews recite the poem, though. Shafardi Jews, originally from the Iberian Peninsula, instead of reading the poem, sing a different poem, this one called Azerot, essentially a recitation of the 613 Old Testament laws. The performance takes two days, with the laws deemed positive in nature being sung on the first day, and the negative ones on the second. There are other poems recited, but you should be getting the idea. Now, about those dairy foods, and I hope you've already eaten, as merely reading the list makes me hungry. Traditional foods served on the holiday include cheesecake, cheese blitzes, which, if you don't know, are essentially cream cheese-filled pancakes, so a dessert masquerading as a breakfast food. Also cheese ravioli and a cake called Siete Cielo, which translates to the Bread of the Seven Heavens. And this last one is slowly going extinct, as the community of Jews who held on to the tradition were ravaged by the Nazis. The bread itself is made of seven rings and is highly symbolic, each ring representing different facets of Jewish history. And not all Jews partake in the dairy traditions. Those hailing from Yemen tend to avoid dairy during the Shavuot. And you may ask yourself, what's the deal with dairy? Does it really do a body good? Rabbinic Literature along with the Old Testament, provides some insight. The first is from King Solomon in the Old Testament book Song of Solomon, sometimes called Song of Songs, where, in chapter 4, the taste of milk and honey are extolled. Also, the Old Hebrew word Kalav translates to both milk and the number 40, which, of course, is a very important biblical number. One of the notations of the number is the 40 days and nights Moses spent on Mount Sinai before bringing down the Ten Commandments. Now, Jewish tradition isn't just that he brought down the first ten laws, but also the entire Torah. Another pair of similar words in the Old Hebrew language is Sinai and cheese. The final explanation is that prior to the Torah, the Israelites were not obligated to follow its laws, which makes sense since they didn't yet have the law. Once they got the Torah, one of the requirements was that their food had to be kosher, so no mixing the cooking pots used for meat with other food. In that society, strict kosher adherents cannot mix meat and dairy. Instead of the constant cleaning required to make these pots kosher after using for meat, they opted to consume dairy products instead. This tradition carries on during the Shavuot, when meat is usually served for the nighttime meal, and dairy is served for either the morning or daytime meal. During the festival, several books of the Old Testament are traditionally read. The most prominent is the Book of Ruth, and the reasons for this specific book are several. First, Ruth was King David's great-grandmother and David is said to have been both born and died on Shavuot. Also, the book of Ruth has an agricultural harvest in its background, with the Shavuot centered around the harvest. Also, the festival is associated with God giving the Torah to Moses. This itself is associated with Ruth, since she was born a Moabite, not an Israelite. She converted to Judaism and this is seen as her entry into the Covenant, similar to the law being given to Moses. There are a few other reasons, but you should get the idea. As for the greenery, according to Midrash writings, and remember, these are the thoughts of historic rabbis, Mount Sinai suddenly bloomed with flowers just prior to Moses being given the Torah. Well, before that, the baby Moses was found in the reeds, and reeds are associated with greenery. Both of these events are said to have occurred on the same calendar day as the festival. At one time, there was a tradition of decorating trees for the festival. This tradition was officially canceled by Vilna Gaon, an 18th century rabbi, because he thought it was too similar to Christmas trees. He was from an area that is now part of Belarus, At the time, it was part of Lithuania, so Eastern Europe. Despite his pronouncement, many Jewish families still decorate their homes in green. The same goes for synagogues, plants, flowers, and leafy branches. Which gets me to the last tradition, the night-long study of the Torah. This, too, likely originated from Midrash writings, with a twist. These writers propose that prior to God bestowing the Torah with Moses, just the very night before the laws were given, the Israelites went to bed early. Okay, to be clear, I doubt they were carting beds around the desert, but saying that they went to mat is a bit confusing. Anyway, they went to sleep early. That way they would be well rested for what was sure to be a memorable day. And despite this, they all overslept, to the point that Moses himself had to rouse them. He was about to head up the mountain, and to a potentially none too happy God, who was kept waiting. And now for a sentence or three of my thoughts Where were Aaron and the other elders? Moses should have remembered what his father in law told him about the judges and delegated. Moses, as great of a leader as he truly was, did forget a few management principles. But, here I am Monday morning quarterbacking, back to the all-night study of the Torah. The Israelites grew to regret this one morning of sleeping in, and sought to rectify it by studying the Torah all night on the anniversary of when it was given. It's thought that this tradition can be traced to 1533, when Joseph Caro a rabbi who was born in what is today Spain. Then, the Christian rulers decreed all Jews were to be expelled from the country. His family, when he was only four, fled to Portugal, and eventually ended up settling in Bulgaria, which at the time were ruled by the Ottomans. Got that? Just know his formative years were spent fleeing persecution, to the point that his family settled under the rule of the Muslim Ottomans, It was that bad. Anyway, in 1533, Rabbi Caro invited a few friends and colleagues over to spend the night at the Shavuot, studying the Torah. They would do it for three days, echoing the three-day preparation of the ancient Israelites before receiving the Torah. Caro and company would assert that during their preparation, an angel appeared before them and instructed them further about Jewish law. That would certainly get my attention. And, there was potentially another factor influencing these night-long study sessions. Around the same time, originating in the Ottoman Empire, was the mass introduction of coffee. Of course, after the mass introduction came the mass consumption. If their coffee was like modern Turkish coffee, it wasn't the coffee you and I think of. It more closely resembles espresso. So even more potent, when you combine caffeine with a desire to learn and atone, you get all-night study sessions, somewhat similar to the modern college experience, sans the atonement. Modernly, the all-night sessions aren't limited to the study of the Torah, as any subject may be read. But it's generally limited to the Talmud and the Mishnah, along with the Torah. The studying may be done alone, with a partner, in a small group, or even in the form of a widely attended lecture. Finally, in Jerusalem, after studying, thousands of practitioners end the session by walking to the Western Wall just before dawn. Once there, they partake in a sunrise service. And this is a modern twist that began in 1967. But why then? Well, it was merely one week earlier that the Israeli army recaptured the wall in the adjoining Temple Mount. And on Shavuot, the army opened the wall to visitors for the first time since 1948. So, in 19 years, Israeli Jews could visit and pray. That day, over 200,000 visited the 200-foot or 61-meter wall. Ever since then, The wall has been the site of a Shavuot pilgrimage. There is a small dispute about when the actual date of Shavuot should fall, but they only vary by one calendar day, essentially either the sixth or seventh day of the Hebrew month of Sivan. According to the classical historical timeline, the Israelites arrived at the wilderness of Sinai on the new moon. This can be found in the first verse of Exodus chapter 19. The Ten Commandments are thought to have been given to the people the next Sabbath, meaning the next Saturday, and the debate centers on if the new moon occurred on the preceding Sunday or Monday. The Subigrafka second-century Book of Jubilees weighs in on the matter, but with a slightly different spin, in this case intending to have the festival fall on the same weekday every year. This would keep it in line with the Saturday Passover Sabbath every year falling 50 days after that celebration, so in that case, Shavuot falling on a Sunday. The book also posits that it was on Shavuot that the rainbow appeared to Noah, marking the beginning of the Noahic covenant. Put the two together, and the anniversary of two historic covenants, Noah's and Moses' fall on the same day as the annual festival. Finally, the period between the Passover and Shavuot marks a process known as the counting of Omer, a process beginning the day after the Passover Sabbath, which is traditionally the first day of the barley harvest, and as seen in Deuteronomy chapter 16. The counting of Omer occurs over the next seven weeks, so ending 50 days after the Passover Sabbath, ending the day before the Shavuot which means that if the Passover is on Saturday, the Shavuot is on Sunday. Different Jewish sects have different interpretations. Not really worth exploring here. And essentially, the interpretations are, is the Shavuot always on a Sunday, or does the day of the week vary with the calendar? And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the concept of the Festival of Ingathering. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.